Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 41 of Inking Out Loud. On the table for today's discussion is the first third of Robert Jordan's Lord of Chaos, book six in The Wheel of Time. Uh, more specifically, we'll be discovering... Discovering? Listen to me. We'll be covering and discovering along the way. The prologue through the end of chapter 15, A Pile of Sand. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And, ladies and gentlemen, we are graced today by the presence of Chief Ambassador, Jared Livingston. What's up, Jared? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I decided, you know, I can't keep giving you military titles, or I can't keep making up uh, increasingly ridiculous, like, titles, like, what was the last one? Uh, Galactic Emperor, I believe it was. I believe in you. It's okay. I have to be a little more, uh, I don't have pretty, a lot of fun going forward. But uh, right now, I'm going to pass it off to Drew, my guy, who's going to tell us what's going on at this point in the series. Drew, take it away, dude. Yeah. So we have one of the biggest prologues in the whole series to kick off with. It's like a 75-page prologue here, where we get caught up everywhere around Ranland. We get scenes with the shadow we get uh demandred's first appearance uh we learn what is going on in saladar with uh Mogedian, who is now collared and under the control of elaine and nynaeve uh i mean we we jump all the way around we see um Morghese arriving in amadicia and taking shelter with uh the white cloaks well shelter is a i guess a relative term there but uh you know we we get all kinds of wrap-ups of people and places where our main characters aren't. And that ends with uh, the reincarnation of two of the Forsaken, Arangar and Osangar, who are uh, the reincarnations of Agenor and Balthamel, respectively. Uh, Balthamel was the, like, the womanizer and, like, hedonist, and he has now been reborn in a woman's body because the Dark One is punishing him. And uh, Agenor, whom we saw in Eye of the World, who was, like, all going for this, like, Adonis body and all of that when he uh, made use of the Eye, he is given a very plain body, very awkward, <laughs> and he's not happy about that. So from there, we move back to Rand in Camelin, where he has announced his amnesty, and none other than Mazrum Taim shows up to uh, uh, seek refuge under Rand's amnesty. Uh, we we follow Rand out to the farm, where he is gathering men who are willing to learn how to channel, and then down to his massed armies outside of Ilion to work on their plans there. And then, uh, yeah, we, we go from there, we get a bunch of stuff in Saladar with Elaine and Nynaeve, and, and how the dynamics of things in Saladar are going. We get some scenes with Egwene in, uh, you know, in the Aiel camps and continuing her education in the world of dreams. And we especially see lots more in the gap of infinity, the, the place where she can go and kind of see like these, the stars in, in the night sky sort of thing that are like the dreams of people. And she gets sucked into Gawain's dream and, uh, finds out, uh, Dreams can be very dangerous places for people you feel very strongly about one way or another. Oh, yeah, they do. And, uh, and that's about where, uh, where we left off um, at, at the end of Chapter 15. So, yeah. Yeah. So, like, this prologue, I still, I, I definitely want to kick off our style discussion by diving directly into an in-depth discussion of this prologue. Because, 
Holy crap! There are so many points of view in this one. Yeah, and I, I made sure in the prologue. Yeah, I made sure to track this as I was going on. Uh, first, we have the Demandrid intro, and yes, let's definitely discuss the crap out of that one after. Um, but we have Nynaeve, Elaine, Fayil, Gawain. We have Katarina Sedai, Savannah, Morgaze, Pedrin Nile, Misana, and then Osengar to wrap it up. Like Arangar. Oh, shit. was it Arangar? Oh no, I wrote yeah. down Osengar. Whoops. Pat put a little sound in there. Um, <laughs> Jordan, though, he's, he's really, really clearly reaching this like his narrative stride at this point in the series, and I, I think we can all agree that he followed through as well. Like giving like one of the largest starts in this series, another one of the largest endings that we're going to see a, a couple episodes yeah. from now. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the prologue, Jared and Drew. I, and the, it, the sheer the sheer scale that it represents. I mean, I'm so, okay with it. I feel like he kind of has to do it, right? Right. Yeah, as as the series expands, uh, the prologues expand because they're how he um, sort of built in a like previously on you know sort of thing that you get in a TV show. You'll get that in the prologue of each book going forward, where he's he's like, well, we just ended the last book with a bang. Now I got to catch you up on all these other little things happening elsewhere, and so I think it's a really smart thing he does, uh, and it's a way to, I mean, y- you may laugh at this, but it's a way for him to keep down the bloat on the series. Um, you know, <laughs> I if, can see if it in he, the long run, yeah, yeah. Like if he didn't construct his prologues like this, we could have ended up with much bigger books with much. Uh, less tightly woven storylines throughout them because he would be spending so much time going off on these tangents um, instead of concentrating most of those tangents into one big chapter at the beginning of the book. Uh, But I also found it really notable in this prologue as the sort of tone of this series progresses and the conflicts get darker and I certainly think uh, Lord of Chaos is a, a notably darker book than uh, The Fires of Heaven and The Shadow Rising. Um, it starts off with our first glimpse of Sheol Ghoul. Yeah, And does. our first glimpse of Demandred. And then he bookends the, uh, the prologue itself. And we'll touch on this again at the end of the book, but... He bookends the prologue with Demandred and then with Masana and Arongar at the end. So it's it's really a pronouncement to his readers saying, hey, get ready for much more of the shadow. Oh, yeah. Get ready for this. Oh, we have an entire chapter coming up. In number, I think it was chapter six, Threads Woven of Shadow. That is almost, mm-hmm. if not entirely, just from the point of view of the Forsaken, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, and, the more so, Forsaken socials we can get, better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. More of these. Jared? So it's just another oh, way that uh, Robert Jordan uses point of view to both like build up his his characters and, and tell his story the most effective way possible, but also to signal things to the reader. He uses point of view like no other writer I've ever encountered. I mean, <laughs> it's it's really, really impressive. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, I really like it. And I never feel like it drags either. Like I said, I forgot I was in the prologue. Yeah, it, like, oh, I think if I'm not mistaken, I actually looked at the end when I actually said chapter one in my audiobook because again, that's how I'm consuming this during the week when I'm working many many hours, and I think the prologue in the beginning of chapter one was 
just over three hours into the book. Maybe just under three hours into the book. It was definitely at least two and a half hours in. And I, I like I remember stopping at that point and going, What? It hasn't it hasn't shifted yet? Because we just we had so many points of view. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean I don't have a whole lot more like style wise to talk about um with this section, so unless you guys do uh, um, I mean, like, it, it is tough to to dig into these style points when we're, you know, like, 20 episodes yeah. in to the Wheel of Time, and, you know... I do have It's one. not like Robert Jordan was remarkably changing the way he wrote throughout the course of the series or anything, so... I do have one that we've, we've briefly been touching on just as of late in our latest uh, Wheel of Time episodes, but I want to discuss Jordan's play, uh, like, on the entirely alien style of humor that is the Aiel. You know, like these these early chapters in particular are like that that gold mine of Aiel humor that I love going back to again and again. And I I couldn't I couldn't make sense much like in my early twenties or sorry I should say until my early twenties when I started to kind of glimpse the overall shape of it it started to make a little more sense. But by now I I love Aiel humor. Like we got this interaction between Anila and that young uh, Shamad Kanda. I I wrote down the society because I can't remember his name, where she makes the opening jab at him. Towards which he responds with something along the lines of, Do you know why maidens use hand talk? Because even when they are not talking, they just cannot stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> that could yeah, that continues to get an outright guffaw out of me every time I get to it. Was that you know, was this when Rand pulled out the rooster joke? Yep, and then yeah. Rand yeah, Jordan plays on this. It's exactly where I'm going with this, Jordan. Th- uh, Jordan? Jared, thank you. How many go- how many freaking incorrect names am I gonna get on our guests? Oh my goodness. Anyway. Jordan plays yeah. on this, though. He gives us that strange, unfathomable style of humor, but he, then he balances it out with Rand's absolute groaner of a joke that follows. You know? We, yeah. Like, ah, uh, it was... What did you think of Rand's joke? I mean... Did it's it even make joke. sense to you? It didn't even yeah, make yeah. sense to me when I was, like, 13. I was like, why is this funny? So How is... Where's the joke the, in there? The, it's a dad joke. The joke is that he, I get it like, now. he fell by the guy. I know, right? I get it now. But and then he's like, like, oh, I just passed him in broad daylight. <laughs> but, like, it's a dad joke. I didn't get that until like my ninth read, probably. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, wait a second. That's not really what he was going for, was it? Every time before that, it just kind of baffled me. I just couldn't, like... It was it was, it was was good, though. I think it was appropriate. We have this moment later, even. It was I think it was Bashir, who's talking about cracking a joke and he or maybe he's actually cracking a joke and we see the maidens kind of like realize oh this is wetlander humor and they kind of lean forward and they're eagerly trying to like decipher the form of it the complexity (laughs) of it you know it's just they're so innocent and they're trying so hard and then i take a step back and i think about what like jordan's accomplishing with that because he's not only created this entire fantastical alien landscape of humor with the Aiel, but it's still complex and it's logical enough that it allows him to still play these totally different styles of humor against one another. He can juxtapose these social norms, but he does it deftly enough that he continues to make me laugh. Just, what a legend. And I would say that's another mark in, in Jordan's favor, like with his unparalleled mastery of world building. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a that's a good point to make. Sweet. So, uh, I, I am glad oh, you, you brought up the humor though, because I wanted to talk about the uh, the, the Aiel humor, joke, especially the now joke. we're getting more and more into it. Yes, we're going to see more of it going forward. I do have one small bitching point though, about just oh? just just one metaphor to bitch about. That's it. That's I just it's only one. But I heard it on my audiobook this time around, and I paused it. and I just had to write it down. It was when the Tower Aes Sedai Tarnafir 
Tarnafair, however you pronounce her yep. name. She speaks with Nynaeve. And we get this line that says, Tarna's smile could have frozen a snowstorm. Oh, I mean, I get it. It's a, <laughs> it's a cold type of smile, but frozen a snowstorm. I mean, really? I was I was legitimately expecting the next line to be something along the lines of, I was ready to hear, like, Nynaeve's smile made Tarna seem warm by comparison. Or something like that. I was just like, oh, I don't know. This, These hyperbolic metaphors that he continues reaching for it's starting to get on my nerves just a little bit just a little bit i mean i i don't have a uh, an issue with that no i i can't really you know argue it's with so you on that over, one it's so over the top it's like ah, i don't know Not even. yeah shall we get but, into our characters yeah i think so cool um and i want to i want to start with rand and bashir and taim here oh bashir yeah uh, it, it, starting at, at the beginning here, uh, with Bashir's whole like attitude toward Rand. How do you guys feel about that? Cause he he's, it's so weird, right? Like how Bashir like tests Rand. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I want to hear what Jared says first too, actually, because I I do have a, a question to bounce. Off I don't of this know. One. I always liked it. You liked it. Drew? Yeah. What was your I, initial I, impression I think, here? I think Rand I, kind of needed it. Okay. Yeah, so I think Bashir is a little bit of a uh, a land replacement for Rand. He he comes in as okay. sort of a father figure, uh, it, and less so in the, like, developmental way, and more of the just, like, steadying presence. He's... He's the sort of rock that Rand needs yeah. to have around him as Rand begins to struggle more and more with his insanity, as especially now, Luce Theron's voice is, like, really coming through. Mm. You know, it. Rand needs somebody like that around him. Well, so, See, this is the last character point I actually had to discuss, but it, since, you know, it, it's involving Rand, you know, uh, in context with Bashir, you know, I, I, I do want to say that this... This throw the way he threw that dagger at Rand, like it just confused the shit out of me when I was I think I was like like, like I said thirteen years old when I first read this book and it occasionally it still kind of confuses me I get what it was going for, but what, when I read this for the first time it blew me away like I I interpreted this as Bashir decided to strike at Rand in a clear moment of weakness and then when Rand hmm. just cools off immediately and then Taim arrives and everyone which went back to being cool with each other I was kind of left there like. What? Like, Bashir is a traitor! Like, why is everyone just acting like this didn't happen? It bothered me for years and years. It, like, literally dozens of reads. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I thought Bashir was just remaining calm and trying to talk his way out of clearly screwing up. But it wasn't until much later, and I was like, okay, I guess I could kind of grasp the action that proves the point, in, like, in the middle that he'd been making. But still, like, even if Rand just eventually accepts Bashir's explanation it took me way longer as a kid to accept that so it led to me honestly considering bashir to be like a prime suspect for dark friend until like book eight there's a moment in book eight which we'll get to later down the road but i don't know i just (laughs) i suspected bashir for so long because of this and then in a memory of light of course we have more reason to suspect bashir and i'm going oh my god how did he hide it this long holy crap but then no it wasn't exactly what we thought it was Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah, I I will say I never really suspected Bashir as being a dark friend. Uh, reading through, um, I I always saw this scene where he throws a knife as just like he's answering a question for himself. He's like, I I I know this guy has to be the Dragon Reborn, but I need to see it firsthand. He's like, I need to see him channel. I need oh, okay. to see that he's like prepared to take this on. I don't know how I feel about that risk though, just to prove a point for himself. I mean, and also, would a dark friend hold Rand back from smashing a seal? Yeah. Well, maybe. For all we know, I mean, the the, the dark, the Forsaken aren't necessarily going to find the seals and immediately shatter them. Like, let the Lord of Chaos rule. That those are standing orders from <laughs> Shail Ghoul, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Although, yeah, I mean, and they're. There's hardly a unified front among the Shadow where many of them do want to kill Rand. That's true. But, um... Uh... Continuing with Rand? Yeah. So, I like Rand in the beginning part of this book. Uh, I like how he's really coming into his own as a ruler. Okay, good. And he's, he's showing the kind of confidence in himself that he never had in the first two, three books, and even through, like, the first part of uh, Shadow Rising I'll and, drink and to Fires that. of Heaven, where mm. where Rand is... Rand has accepted that he needs to rule, and he's starting to accept himself as a ruler. And because of that, you know, he's not the best ruler out there. He does still make mistakes, but he handles things much more smoothly and much more confidently He's beginning to realize one of the keys to leadership is delegation, and he's taking advantage of the people he has around him for that, you know. Uh, and, uh, and and he just... He's, like, settled into himself in a lot of ways that I appreciate a lot. The only thing that frustrates me in this early part is how he still keeps running away from Avienda. Hmm. Uh, Jared, Randall Thor? I mean... <clears throat> I I think it's hard to say that he's settling in when Luz Theron is trying very hard to break out. Well, that's an external... Well, I guess te- technically it's an internal, internal force, but I don't know. I think I see what Drew is saying, but you're right. Like, Luz Theron still threatens a whole lot of the ground that Rand stands upon at this point. Yeah, I mean, like, Luz... Like, he is... Rand is going insane. Like, that is Without a, a thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. But Rand, in the public role that he needs to take... Right. ...facing the world, he is settling into that role and is getting more comfortable as the figure of the dragon yeah. reborn. No, I, I have He's a lot not like running away really. from it or denying it anymore. <clears throat> yeah. You know? I, I love seeing this form, if you will, of, of Rand. Like he has finally, in my opinion, and I wrote this down without reservation, accepted what he is. And, you know, his transformation into what I'm calling, you know, dark Rand is, is finally really, you know, undergone. Uh, but I, I love seeing well, the way... Beginning. Well, I mean, I would say, like, Moiraine's death would be, like, the true beginning of that. Or death. Yeah, yeah, know. that's that's fair. Um, and, of course, it's not, you know, the end of his road. He has a whole journey to go through. But, you know, seeing the way that, as you were saying, Drew, that he continues to balance this power across Camelin and Kyrian and Tyr and the Aeel, as well as Bashir and Mazram Taim, it's just so... And I wrote down so cool. And I swear, I tried to find another way to describe it, but I can't. It's just so cool. 
seeing this mm -hmm. leader that he's become. He's not depressing to be around yet, but he's still come so far from the ran that began. This, like, insane journey, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, <laughs> he's it. He's the boss. He is highest now on the list of people not to be fucked with. Right? Well, maybe, this, yeah, maybe the yeah, Forsaken are higher on that list. And yet he's still... He's still responsible and not overreacting. Like, I thought of that when he is down in uh, Ilian going over with the with the Tyrant officers, and he learns about the rebels that are oh, in yes. Haddon Merc. And younger Rand might have been very quick to jump off and maybe overreact a little bit, but he handles it very well. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. Yeah, he handled exactly. that very well. Yeah, for sure. So that's the end of my Randall Thor discussion points. Anything else you guys want to discuss Rand concerning? As uh, far as Rand and Avienda go, I think oh, I, it's certainly a problem, yeah. but I think Rand's aware of it. Like, I don't... Yeah, I think what frustrates me the most about it is how, in certain ways, like, we're discussing there with, like, Rand's rulership and, his, and how he's, like, portraying his self-confidence... Um, in like the public sphere, he seems like an adult now. You know, he's a he's mature about how he's handling his role as the Dragon Reborn and as the ruler of these nations and, and cultures. But then when it comes to Avienda, he feels like a like a fourteen year old who's like <laughs> scared of his girlfriend, you know? Like <laughs> I didn't get too much out of that out of Rand this time. Like what makes you say he's afraid of like or like he's running away from, sorry oh, from oh, Avienda? He, he like, constantly what does it in this book. Uh, several times where like he's got a he's got a gateway open and Avienda like sees that oh, he's leaving yeah, and she's he like Randall Thor and she starts to go and he's just like huh? nope and closes the gateway and like you know and he does that a couple of different times in this book where he runs away from Avienda and I think and it's, at least in this yeah. section there's one point where he does it and Bashir comments on it and says something like mm -hmm. something about not running away from a woman. Damn, yeah, I didn't pick it's, up on that. it's the one frustrating thing I have with Rand at this point is how he treats Avienda. And I think that gets exacerbated more because obviously, you know, as we've talked about, I like Avienda a lot. I don't particularly like Min a lot. And in this book, Min gets all of Rand's attention and Rand just runs away from Avienda. Well, obviously, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's, it's very frustrating to me how Rand juggles his relationships in this book. I would say it was necessary, though, because Avienda got a huge majority of Book 5 when Min was just kind of swept to the side. I think Jordan needed to bring Min to the forefront, and keeping Avienda in that in that environment would have been very awkward, I think, at this early stage of their, you know, four-way relationship. I mean, I disagree with that, but that's something we can address. I mean, because Min is... You know, we'll, we'll talk about this much more in depth later, but Min is nailed to Rand's side for the next, like, seven books. Okay. She she does spend a lot more time with him like, <laughs> at this point going forward, or at least in part two probably going forward. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you guys feel about Rand's reaction when he meets Varen and Alana? Oh! And Alana bonds him. Yeah, so that was one of my miscellaneous points that I wanted to write down. Like, another notable thing in this book that, like, that has huge implications for the future of this series, Alana Bonding Rand. Um, when I first read it, I thought one of them was going to die. Yeah, I thought so too. And I, I, uh, I, I still think yeah. Rand should have been I mean, harsher, perhaps, if that's how I want yeah. it. I don't know. 
Well, like, I, it, it's one of those things where, like, I wish he would have been harsher, but at the same time, he couldn't have been. If he had killed Alana, the bond would have broken and Rand would have gone suicidal, you know, like... That's true, but then again... And, and so it was this, like... kill her, though. But then again, I'm not talking about him needing to physically do anything to her. Sorry, go ahead. It, it, it's like... It's a frustrating situation where anything Rand does to Alana hurts himself. And she knew that, and that's that's part of why it's such a despicable thing that Alana did. It was, I mean, it's a literal mind rape, for one thing. And, you know, there's there was no consent on Rand's part. He had no idea what was about to happen. She just did it. And yeah. uh, it's, you know, and, and some people might say, like, oh, she has a little bit of an excuse where she was so mentally unstable because she like... just lost warders. In well, you know, in the two rivers, it's been it's been weeks or not months at this point, right? Uh, I like maybe a couple of weeks. It but... happened before Perrin even got to the two rivers. Yeah, right. But I mean, this is a thing that lasts. It's not like a one one day you're sad and the next day you're fine as an ice. But then again, to unwillingly like, or sorry, unwillingly, just to force a bond upon an unsuspecting dragon reborn. Oh, I'm not. Is I'm not using this as justification. There. I'm saying some people will argue that it's oh, justification. Yeah. Okay. It's not at all. I don't give a shit how <laughs> unstable mentally you are. You don't get to just do this to people. Yeah. Okay. Like, sorry. That's that was the point I was gonna make. I, I, no. I forgot. What, <laughs> I forgot what you were doing with that point. You were. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. You were interpreting the other side. I'm, I'm providing context and then, yes. and then shooting that context down because yeah. there's... Yeah. No, fully agreed. Fully Do agreed. you think that the way uh, Rand treated the Two Rivers girls when he stepped out was kind of in reaction to that whole yes. thing? Yes, okay. That's what, yeah, yes. definitely. Definitely in reaction yeah. to that. If that had not happened to him and he had stepped out of that room, totally civil, you know understanding has been reached and then the, the the two rivers girls approach him and they're saying oh my god rand can you believe what this man is saying about you how ridiculous mm -hmm. i think he would have been able to hold himself like in way more effectively like, he like was... i i feel like he might have just kind of laughed with the girls and been like huh yep how crazy is that i'm but, the dragon reborn and like yeah you with know his... and... <laughs> yeah he would have he would have laid that bomb in there and then just exit stage right that's what he would have yeah. done yeah so, but but of course, this is another thing that contributes to Rand's uh, mental instability himself, mm -hmm. in, to his insanity, where, like, this is the seed that really um, grows into his paranoia and his distrust of those around him oh, that we yeah. see later on down the line. Because Rand has just lost Moiraine, whom he trusted. For, for all they butted heads, he trusted her. He did. And then he has an Aes Sedai come up to him like this and be like, hey, let me step into this vacant role. That's the sort of implicit agreement there, right? Like, that's what Alana wants. They know that Moiraine's not there anymore, so she's like, this is an opportunity for me to become Rand's next Aes Sedai confidant. Did and she, she thinks that, that though, or was oh, she just trying to keep yeah, tabs what, on you the think, Dragon Reborn? You, you think she was just going to bond him and then walk away? No, but she's not thinking rationally, my dude. I don't know. That seems like pretty complex. No, no. she she a hundred percent wanted to be with Rand. I said I don't bond people and then leave them. That's I not a thing. I, well. They, That's they not a thing. Don't just especially Alana, information either. Especially <laughs> Alana, who like sleeps with her warders. Yeah, she is a green, isn't she? Yeah, not like, to, this, not this to make is not generalizations here, but she's no, green. The, this was absolutely her plan. 
that she wanted to keep tabs on Rand and become his new confidant. Like, and and that's why she wanted, she immediately tried to compel him through the bond. Mm. Hurts to think that that might be what she thought of Moiraine, though. Uh, I don't think she thought Moiraine was doing that. I think she thought, I can adapt the same role that Moiraine had, but I'm going to do it in my own way. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. I I certainly don't think she would do something like that with the huge risk that it entails and then be fine with walking away. Mm -hmm. Well, she didn't really have a choice. It's like, you stay here or you're not going to like what happens next. Theoretically, had had she, had Ren not reacted that way, she wasn't just going to walk away. Oh. Like, she was going to stay near Ren. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, probably. What happens if Ran, what would have happened if Ran had severed one of them? Or I guess, what, what would happen if he had severed Alana specifically after being bonded? Ooh. Uh, that would have broken the bond. Would have broken it? Oh, yeah. really? Interesting. Yeah. So a bond broken. A bond broken would sever... Okay. No, no. A, a bond... A severing would break the bond. Severing would break the bond, yes. Yeah, severing would break the bond. Yeah, sorry, I'm just getting mixed up in my terminology here. Interesting, because we know that it's possible to be bonded with somebody who cannot channel, but that was done in under entirely uh, different circumstances. You know, it's not like Min had the the ability to channel beforehand and then had. The- and and it is important to note that uh, the bond does not work the same way between Min and Rand. Like in in that uh, triple bonding, Min is like uh, an Aes Sedai in that situation right because it's like the three of them bonded rand yeah rand didn't bond them right (laughs) it's okay but min as we see later in that scene she cannot mask the bond the way the channeling oh i thought that was just like a mental fortitude thing no no the bond does not work the same for men oh see i'm just learning this now cool yeah you always learn something new when you're discussing wheel of time lore with drew (laughs) <laughs> Wait, so does it work differently between two women, too? Like Elaine and Brigitte? I th- well, no, because Elaine's still the Aes Sedai and Brigitte is the water. The yeah, water. but the fact it's that they're like, both women, he means. Uh, well, they're, they, like, have, um, they're, they have some mirrored emotions that we see, and, like, uh, the bond affects Brigitte more. Like, Brigitte gets drunk when Elaine gets drunk, and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and, and the implication cool. is that their uh, uh, cycles sync up. Oh yeah, uh, or something along those lines. Birgitta and Elaine's, yeah. Um, but but I mean, like, in in that Birgitta Elaine bond, Birgitta is still the warder, so it doesn't really matter that she can't channel. In the Min Rand bond, Min is the quote I Sedai, and Rand is the warder. Okay, yeah. And so Min can't do everything that an I Sedai can do with the bond because okay. she can't channel. Right, right. Like compel, or for example, like yeah. Gotcha. Or mask the bond, yeah. Or mask the bond. Okay, cool. Uh, anyway, now that we've to me, spent to me, this the whole thing with Lana was the bomb of this section. Of this section, personally. yeah. Okay. Yes, um, I think there are. Time, kind of blue. Yeah, blue, I was right? gonna say there are a yeah. couple of big things. Uh, I think one of the uh, sort of uh, how do I how to put it like sort of under the radar moments in this section is. Nicola's foretelling. Oh, that happened? I was waiting to talk about that. Did I miss that? I was yeah, so was disappointed a, I wouldn't get to talk about it today because I didn't hear it. was it. near the end of Chapter 14, Dreams and Nightmares. It's oh. during the Bubble of Evil attack. Do we have the um, exact wording in front of us? I do have the exact wording. 
Uh, let me pull it up here. Damn it, I knew that was coming and I was getting ready to write it down. I freaking missed it somehow. Uh, and I'll, I'll address this uh, in my lore segment <clears throat> in a bit, but the oh, yeah. exact wording is, the lion, th the lion sword, the dedicated spear, she who sees beyond. Three on the boat, and he who is dead yet lives. The great battle done, but the world not done with battle. The land divided by the return, and the guardians balance the servants. The future teeters on the edge of a blade. So, the chills. Chills. I mean, they're, like I said, we'll talk about that more, like I'll break that down a bit uh, in the lore section here, but that's a that's a pretty big yeah, it is. bomb of a foretelling to drop I'm in so here. I'm disappointed I missed it. Oh, no. So... So yeah. now that we've spent like 30 minutes or 25 minutes d discussing Rand, <laughs> and then just uh, jumping off of that. Let's, let's, let's talk Egwene just briefly. Okay. Um, again, I don't have a ton to say about Egwene here. Uh, she only had a few scenes, uh, you know, training stuff. Um, I I am frustrated by her, as usual. Um, I, I was super annoyed with how she remains a hypocrite about Teleronriad, mm -hmm. uh, and, and she's, like, hiding from Elaine and Nynaeve now mm -hmm. as well. Um, <laughs> and she once again, like, considers trying to break into Rand's dreams and break through his wards. But, of course, that's not something you do to your friends. No, that's uh, not something that you do to your friends. Why would you um, think that, Drew? You monster. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the big thing of note with Egwene here is the gap of infinity and how... Gawain's dream chases her. Can I and ask sucks you about her that? in? So you call it the Gap of Infinity. That's the official title for this place. This uh, realm. It doesn't of have an official title. This uh, Gap so of I've Infinity never heard is that um, phrase before. Oh, uh, so it's been around for a while uh, online. It, it came out of like uh, like the Theoryland forums. So like a it colloquial was... fandom terminology. Right? Yeah, got yeah. you. Okay. Um, I know some people call it like the in between or the in between place. Uh, but I think the gap of infinity makes a lot more sense. Um, but yeah. So, uh, but but I think it's it's really important that we get this scene here where we find out how uh, dreams can interact with you as a as a dreamwalker rather than like you just manipulating others' dreams, and how if you have these strong emotions, whether love or hate, you can be sucked in and lose your control entirely. And I think that's a you know kind of an important lesson for Egwene to uh, to learn here. Yeah, no. So. Like on the on the subject of of Egwene, I only wrote down two things, and I wrote down and I quote: "Surprise, surprise! Egwene is up to some wrongdoing." Close call there with Nynaeve and Elaine in, <laughs> in the White Tower. And the second that I wrote down is, of course, Gawain's dream. I'm probably gonna piss off some people when I go forward, but bring it. Let's let's get pulled into Gawain's dream. Watch Galad literally kill Randall Thor, the Dragon Bloody Reborn, Lord of the Morning, and prophesied savior of mankind. Not to mention the boy you've been practically engaged to since very recently. She watches Galad kill Rand and ends up Gawain. Giving... Oh my God! I thought it was Galad. I don't know why it was. Later, oh, Gawain. Thank you. Gives up. And just gives in and ki ends up kissing him, and who knows what you know happens after we fade to black. And I can just hear it now. Well, Rand is sleeping around with everybody right now, but that's not my point. Could you imagine Rand watching, say, like Avienda slitting Egwene's throat in a dream and thinking, "Oh boy, she's so dreamy. I, that's it. I give in to this." <laughs> like really? That's hey, all I, will I, mean, I, I will say part of part of this 
Ian Egwene's defense here. She has been, like, subsumed into Gawain's dream. Egwene, like, doesn't have full control anymore. So she is beginning to, in this dream, reflect what Gawain wants her to be. And what you know Gawain what? wants her to be is, like, okay. totally on his side, you know. Okay. Uh, you know what? I hadn't considered I'm not, that. I'm that, not holding that specific thing against Egwene. That's why the wise one said it's dangerous to do to enter someone else's dreams towards whom you have strong emotions, whether they be positive or negative. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know what? No, I, I I take a lot of that tone back. But on that note though, like screw Gawain, dude. Like <laughs> he 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 hears like one rumor from one merchant who like doesn't even give him solid answers and suddenly he's like, I know exactly what happened and uh, I hate Randall Thor and I'm gonna kill him. I'm like, I Gawain is Gawain. such an idiot. Oh, so I mean I never long. liked him to begin with. Siding with the Elida faction, so I I yeah, it was like I liked Gawain up until he sided with Elida, and then he just got worse and worse and worse as the series went on. I liked Gawain until he sided with Elida, and then I hate. He was probably, if you had asked me honestly, during my reading of the Wheel of Time, which is like from 2001 to 2013, during my teenage years, my developmental years as a young adult, who I hated the most of all the characters, it would have been Gawain. More so than hmm. Egwene, more so than characters you're supposed to hate, like Pod and Fane. Or, I don't know, like, Savannah's up there. I just... <laughs> sorry, who? Savannah. Yeah, really? Savannah's my least favorite Oh, Savannah. I thought you said Swan. Savannah's pretty no. bad, yeah. But, I don't know. Yeah, I can't just, stand Gowan Savannah. was just always infuriated me. So the, this, this frothing at the mouth that he gets at the idea of killing the Dragon Reborn and avenging his mother, based on nothing, based on hearsay, is just... Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's all. That that that's everything I thought about Gawain for these next like six books is just or seven is like, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have nothing it, much so, to add on Egwin. Well, we we still need to discuss Perrin and Matt, and we don't have a ton of page time for either of them here, but we do have interesting things to discuss about them. Cool. And kicking off with Perrin, welcome back, Perrin. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you had a good honeymoon. Uh, yeah. But it's. It's fun to see him again, like, being forced to be a leader, and like Rand, he is learning to, like, delegate, and, and he's learning to deal with multi-pronged issues in his, uh, you know, rulership, yeah. uh, so to speak, and uh, and, and I, I really found that scene kind of charming, uh, you know, in the prologue from Fayil's point of view, where, uh, like, watching him you know, receive all of these, like, supplicants and stuff, and, and, uh, and you get the, um, you get this new Two Rivers feeling where there are all these refugees now coming in, and, and we have to figure out how, how is this going to impact the culture in the Two Rivers, and, you know, it, like, when you have Domani refugees who make awesome dresses, and awesome. the Two Rivers woman Who's, who also makes dresses is all jealous and like and it's all figuring out how to fix Balancing these problems these conflicting and, interests I just I do and yeah. like appreciate those subtleties yeah that we get from parents and Rand's point of view in a lot of cases yeah but but this this one Fayil point of view uh, I I really enjoyed the slice of life kind of scene that it painted and and gave us a good idea of what the two rivers is turning into. I feel yeah, bad Jared. for Perrin. Like, he's finally settling in, and now suddenly he feel, feels just, you know, big to veer and pull. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Poor guy just never I mean, it's gets a break. Such is life for a Taviren. <laughs> Eternally right. suffering parent. I can't wait to see what Marcus Rutherford brings to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it, and on the subject of Taviren, uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and say this is one of my favorite Matt chapters in like the entire series. Mm-hmm. When he's dancing with Betsy Sylvan in Mayron, and like having this memory of you know dancing with like the Seafolk ambassador and. And then, and I want to, so I'm going to make a point about this scene. Oh, okay, make a point. Let me see if I can pull the, uh, let me see if I can pull up the actual page and get the quote for you. Because it's a chapter called A Different Dance, and that is chapter five. And, uh, yeah, he's, you know, being maneuvered across the dance floor by, by Betsy Sylvan. And uh, when he goes back to the table, or he sees, like, Darid and Talmanis at the table, this Talmanis is a very, very different character than the Talmanis <laughs> that Brandon Sanderson wrote. Very different character. Oh, we're starting this now. Okay. Oh, we're starting this. Like, that's exactly how I feel. Like, we're starting this now? In Lord of Chaos? I suppose this is a notable point, well, well, though. Like, if this because is the, this is... This is yeah. the Talmanis that you choose to represent the Robert... Or at least part of the Talmanis that you choose to represent the Robert Jordan version of Talmanis. Yeah, I can see and why you because this is the, this the one scene we get to see Talmanis's sense of humor come through. He's humming frog on Where, ice. Whereas <laughs> Talmanis... Yeah, yeah. That's like... Tomanis is so understated. He's not talkative. He's not sarcastic. He's just sort of there. Whimsical. And 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 kind of has his private humor. Yep. And then when we see him in the Gathering Storm onward, he's suddenly like loudmouth sarcastic jokester with Matt. And we never, ever, ever saw that. Well, he's, he's before like, Brandon Sanderson got, he just got set, old. He, like, he seems to exist in at least in the Gathering Storm. He just seems to exist to set up Matt for better jokes. Correct. Well, better being relative because yeah, most of them are yeah, terrible. Yeah. It depends but, on your point of view. I'm not a huge fan either, but some people are apparently. And it mean, yeah. yeah. But but that's because because this Talmanis, I love this Talmanis. He's like this Talmanis is definitely the kind of guy that I would love to sit down like and have a mug of ale with in a tavern, you know. At this point and, in the series, I have no opinion on Talmanis. Yeah. Talmanis, I just it's just not notable in any way. Mm. I just love him because he he just reeks competence. He's like he's uh, as a Kyrian and noble, remarkably adaptable. Mm, he's true. willing to just be like, all right. We're doing this now? All right, we're doing this. Like, And, uh, you know, there are plenty of nobles who would never in a million years have have reacted to Matt that way, you know? But he he's the kind of guy who is willing to adjust his own point of view to get the job done and to make things better, as well as, you know, he's, he's clearly a, um, not an overwhelming personality. He's he's very understated. He's quiet. He's like an introvert, you know. And then suddenly, yeah. there's a, a there totally a different huge Tomanis, tonal but, shift there once Brandon yeah. Sanderson took over. I'll agree with that. Yeah, on his character so, specifically. Yeah, that was that was like the main reason I wanted to bring up that that one chapter, a different dance. I cool. I love it with Matt and Betsy. I think it's an adorable scene, 
and I and I really love Talmanis's little bit of page time there. And no, of course, I, we have Oliver show up there as well. Oh yeah, Oliver shows up. How did I forget to write this down in, in like my list of huge things for the future of the Wheel of Time? Holy crap! Yeah, no. Uh, can, go ahead. Here, actually, well, on, on the topic of Oliver, um, let's just get this out of the way. Oliver is not guide all. Oh, for God's sake! He okay. I I, I realized where you were going with that halfway through your sentence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. Just it, for for any listeners out there, I I don't know if you know you, you theorized about this or. If you've you know participated in any discussions about it, Oliver is not Guy Dalkane. Oliver is way too old to be Guy Dalkane. Robert Jordan himself came out on several occasions, said, no, he's not Guy Dalkane. He has a different purpose to serve in the series, which we do see him serve a different purpose. Um, he like he, he is just too old. Guy Dalkane was woven out. <laughs> just remembering like <laughs> the one guy that called uh, you out and said, Yeah, well that's the author's interpretation of this character. Does it mean that it's actually true? I was like, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> he's still trying to argue with it after you posted the words of Robert Jordan saying that he's not. It's like, ah, uh, I don't understand. Oh. Yeah. Um and although uh, interestingly we do see the parents of Guy Dalkane in the beginning of this book as well. What? Hold on, back up a second there. What did you just say? Yeah. Or at least. Guy Dalkane is Jern Sora Grady's second son. Oh, ho, ho! you just blew my mind, dude. You didn't know about this? I did not know about that. When was this, like, unveiled? Uh, so there are several clues. Um, obviously, Jur. We see Jur's first son, uh, Gadrin, here, and he is very ugly. Yeah, that's what uh, and, Jur says about so, him. That's why I like Jur so much. He's got very um, <laughs> good sense of humor. But Gadrin also is too old. Uh, but in in Towers of Midnight, um, Jur gets a letter from Sora. Uh, basically, we, we don't see the actual text of the letter, but he gets a letter from her basically to tell him, like, hey, I had the baby. And then we get a point of view from Jurgrady in a memory of light where like in the middle of the last battle, he's like got the letter, the words of which he has memorized in his pocket. And then people, people were like, like harping on Brandon Sanderson to get him to confirm this. And finally, um, uh, Therese, uh, Teresa Gray, uh, she got, she got Brandon to say like, yes, Jur has multiple children. He has another son. Yeah. Oh, so. my God. I, I missed that. <laughs> still learning new things. Jared, did you know about this? No, no. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah. Okay, wow. Maybe I should have kept that for the lore segment, too, but I do have some Damn. fun stuff for that anyway, so. Cool, cool. Um, <laughs> as far as Matt goes, I didn't write down anything to discuss about Matt, but I will say that, like Drew, that chapter of his, I think it was chapter five, A Different Dance, mm-hmm. one of the best Matt sequences in the entire series. Like, the way that he interplayed, that Jordan, you know, interplayed the memories from, um, I think it was the king of Eheron, dancing with the sea folk mm-hmm. woman um, of equally high rank, whom I can't remember her title. Uh, but, God, it was just so well done. Like, the the dance going in there, the memories, like the, even the description of the, uh, the musicians and how their song almost matched it. It was just enough to truly take Matt back. It was just... Ah, oh, that whole scene was just, I think it was just a perfect scene. More of these, more Matt, but, you know, it was like a little little hors d'oeuvre 
of just keeping in line, you know, where, where Matt is right now. And, of course, all these hints that we're getting about, you know, the actual plan with the hammer, with that giant army down in the south. Yeah. That, you know, this, this secret plan that only Rand and Matt and Bashir, and I think there's one other who knows the actual plan. I can't remember. But uh, I thought it was just the three of Rand them. Rand and Matt and Bashir are the only ones are, that are aware of the true plan. And just this huge army that Rand is just amalgamating down in the south. It's just, ah, that was an awesome chapter from beginning to end, word for word. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you guys have any other, like, character notes? I didn't have much to talk about with Elaine and Nynaeve. Um, like, there's... It's just general Aes Sedai politicking going on in Saladar yeah, right now. I had one moment about Elaine that I wanted to bring to the forefront and just say that Elaine stepping into that nightmare to save these arrogant, dismissive, and blatantly insulting Aes Sedai, not oh, only yeah. did that fill me with some sort of pride for this character, I and mean, seriously, Elaine is one of the bravest characters in this entire series, whether or not she wants to admit it, but where <laughs> yeah. it really, really hit me was where she realized the Aes Sedai might not know what it was that she chose to do there and just assume that she was also caught in the nightmare as well. But then she still chose to say nothing. You know, yes. Elaine does mm -hmm. have redeeming moments to balance out these gripes that a lot of people, and honestly, myself included, are going to have about her in the future. This moment, though, top quality Elaine. I did like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also think it's a very telling counterpoint to the scene early in Fires of Heaven when... Egwene summons a nightmare on that nave because she's like, you're yeah. not prepared. You're you're way in over your head here. And Elaine clearly shows, no, she's not in over her head. It's the Aes Sedai who made the mistake, not Elaine. Yeah. You know? So. Uh, Jared, anything but, about Elaine? Well, sorry, go ahead, Drew. You said you're going to, look like you're going to continue? Oh, uh, no. Well, if Jared has any Elaine points, go for it. Nope. Nope. <laughs> okay. Elaine. So, so, yeah, like, with Nynaeve, I, it's just like, sort of like frustrating treading water where she she still hasn't broken her block she's still oh. getting treated like trash by the Aes Sedai like you know so I, I do have something to say about that because I, I don't have anything much to say about Nynaeve but that is the one thing I wanted to say but you know besides knowing that she's for me personally infinitely more palatable of a read after Fires of Heaven but we're approaching this struggle that I consistently forget that she has during the midpoint of the series, where she's learning to get over her block. And we get a scene after her meetings with Theodrin where she's 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 weeping with frustration and she's realizing that she can't do everything and that she mm -hmm. still has problems to work over. And I, I'm back to rooting for her again. I feel terrible for her. And knowing what's going to happen with Nynaeve in the midpoint and the end point of this book, I'm just like, ah, so looking forward to it. Yeah, nice. Um, it's do you guys have any to see her oh. work in earnest to break down her block? Yeah, yeah, and to see her given that that chance that she needs, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, sorry, Drew, you're gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say if you have any other like <clears throat> miscellaneous character notes you want to bring up, now is the time. Yep. Okay. Um, I'll say I was surprised to recognize Jared Serend in the first chapter. As one of the sympathetic Camelin oh, yeah. nobles fighting over Rand's swords work. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the next time we see this guy in the prologue of A Memory of Light when he's, like, fucking insane? Or do we get any uh, more? He's a very, such I a minor character. I think we see him in Night of Dreams. Because he's got the... He's in charge of the armies besieging Camelin. 
And isn't there the one scene in, in Knife of Dreams from the point of view of... Oh my gosh, who's the noblewoman? Holy shit, if you actually remember this, or something this obscure, um, I'm super impressed. It's like the granddaughter... So, Sylvais is the granddaughter of the, like, the decrepit old dude, and her, and she has her secretary, Lenault, who's, like, the torturer, like, probably dark friend guy. I'm trying to remember whose point of view it is. It might have been Elenia? It might have been Elenia's point of view, where they're, like, Holy meeting, crap. there's a meeting of all the, um, the, <laughs> like, rebels outside of Camelin, and I think Jared Sarand is there. <coughs> You continue to blow me away with the, the the how much you can retain from these reads. Oh my god! Well, yeah. So the arrival of Mazrum Time. Damn, one of those ocean moments that always stands out, and especially at this point in the series. Holy, I don't mm -hmm. know why I was taken by surprise at this point in the series when it happened, but awesome. Um, oh, oh, oh. He, okay, so there was there was something I had discussed very briefly with Drew before we started this. Um. I think I've realized part of why so many people are hell-bent on the idea of Matt having died at Roydeon. There's a there's oh. a particular thought that Matt had in Chapter 5, which we just finished discussing, um, a different dance. While he's dancing with Betsy, <clears throat> or maybe he's just about to dance with Betsy, he specifically has a thought where he goes, and I quote, It had been a prophecy, in a way, to die and live again, to marry the daughter of the Nine Moons, to give up half the light of the world to save the world, whatever that meant. He had died, after all, swinging on that rope. If that was true, the rest had to be. End quote. Now, where people go wrong is where they fail to realize that this is exactly how Matt remembers it. Since he has no recollection whatsoever of dying in Camelin. This, like, this is another point that I have... The, towards what Drew is so the point that Drew is so fond of making in the unreliable narrator. Matt, in this yes. case, does not know the truth. And that's why, in my opinion, it's so quaint. Well, and, and to this specific point, Matt does think, right, that he died on the tree. Yeah. But then in a memory of light, when he's meeting Arthur Hawkwing, he's yeah. talking about, like, the horn Hawkwing and the bond being broken straight. to the horn. And Matt's like, I did die. That tree claimed me. And Hawkwing says, not the tree, gambler. Another time, one you don't remember. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, right there. And then, of course, there's the Robert Jordan quote where some guy asked him, like, how long was Matt hanging on the tree? And Robert Jordan said, long enough. And the guy was like, long enough for what? And he goes, long enough to be almost dead. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard about that that quote. Like Robert that. Jordan, like, loved such screwing with people when they asked him. No, yeah, he's a smart When ass. they asked him questions. But, uh, but yeah. So, uh, did you have any other, uh, like, character yeah, points there? Uh, just, we, we already discussed the Forsaken Social, Chapter 6. Oh, uh, Chapter 9, Plans. Uh, Child Omerna just talking to Pedron Nile. All these different rumors that he's bringing <laughs> to the forefront. And the one that he got right was about the trouble in Falme being caused by Hawkwing's army's return from across the ocean. Right. And Pedron Nile, yeah. who's so careful, so thoughtful, so ostensibly wise just dismisses that without thought and considering the threat that the that the sean chan pose imminently yeah. <coughs> funny Whoops. very funny uh elena bonds uh, rand got that out of the way sorry go ahead you sound like you want to uh, uh well on the topic of omerna i i got such a crack out of like omerna's bringing in all these like you know incorrect rumors and and like of course that's the one thing he got right but that one thing he got right is like a year out of date 
<laughs> true. True. Like, Omerna, well, obviously, like, oh, he's so incompetent. And then, of course, he's, like, shuffled out, and, and Niall's like, can you send in my secretary? You know, and then you get Balwer, who's, like, the real spy I master. Love he's like, I yeah. love Seven Balwer. And Michael, by the way, Michael Kramer's, since we're on the subject, Michael Kramer's delivery of Seven Balwer, 11 out of 10. So good. Oh, He's such nice. this very nasally, decrepit old man. <laughs> with the, He puts an accent on him. It's just... Oh I'd be God. curious to see like how it compares to the voice he does for Halwin Nori later in the series. Oh yeah, in the in the in the the Camelin Palace. Yeah, it's probably very similar. Um, but knowing him, it's distinct enough. And my last one, another bubble of evil. I was frustrated on behalf of yep. Elaine and Nynaeve, who we know by this point have already tried to warn the Aes Sedai about this, and she was. Oh, they're like, no, it's one of the Forsaken. And dismissal. <laughs> yep. Another theme that we're seeing popping up at this point in the series. Between this and Elaine having to rescue them from the nightmare, the Aes Sedai, specifically the Saladar Aes Sedai, yeah. are having to learn that they are they're having to learn some tough lessons about what they think is possible. Yeah, well, and and I loved how Nynaeve like calls them out on it uh, at the oh, end of she chapter fifteen, it. where, yeah, where she she's does. like, "You're Go all just Nynaeve. afraid to do anything. You have no idea. You're blind. You're you're stumbling through the dark." I wanted and to they punish her, Nynaeve. and then yes. and then it. They punish her for that, and then of course it switches point of view, and Morvrin is like outright saying like I am terrified of Randall Thor. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, Morvrin and Shir- uh, was it Shiriam with her? Yeah, and Shiriam. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, so, but going back to the White Cloaks around there, uh, oh, yeah. one one other little little bit of tidbit, and maybe this is like a lore crossover, but just a fun character point. Uh, the dark friend Pater from Market Sharon oh, has returned. Oh yeah! How did I forget about him? Well, we don't see like the end of his journey for a few chapters yet. Yeah, good old Pater Conal. Pater, the one with the nose. And did you realize just how broken his nose is? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, because <laughs> Rand decked him. <laughs> Rand, he got decked by Randall Thor. Dude's like six foot six, and according to Tom Marilyn, an axe handle across the shoulders. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I always love that, um, and we'll discuss Pater more when we get to the conclusion of that little mini story arc. But probably in part two, I've think, always right? been amused yeah. by by that particular like uh, cameo in <laughs> yep. in yeah as the series goes on. But so that's the end of my uh, uh, everything to discuss about Lord of Chaos Part One. What about you guys, uh, Jared? What do you got? Yeah, I think that covers it. All right, so I have a couple of lore things to bring up. Sweet. And oh, we're yeah. going to dig into something that I haven't uh, I haven't really like thought of or discussed much in years since I was in college actually, cuz I wrote um, uh, my undergrad thesis on uh, mythology and Arthurian legend in the Wheel of Time. No shit. And uh, so kicking it off the tie-in here is Nicola's foretelling, right? Mm. This, uh, let me see if I can, like, go grab that page again, because uh, I want to break down kind of line by line what her foretelling was. Good, because there's one little stipulation I have. Not stipulation, one one point yeah. of clarification so, that I need. So we have the, the lion sword, the dedicated spear, and she <clears throat> who sees beyond. That's <clears throat> very obvious, right? Yeah, could not but be that, more that obvious. Is, that is Elaine, Avienda, <clears throat> and Min. Now, the next is fear? three on the I'm boat. What? <laughs> okay with you, dude. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, 
I was about to be like, wow. wow." (laughs) No, dude, come on. Uh, So three on the boat and he who is dead yet lives. And now this is a reference to Arthurian myth, as well as, of course, a reference to Rand and uh, his body swap with Moradin. Uh, I I get that second part, but what's the boat? So, So in Arthurian mythology, Arthur is, well, in one of the many versions of it, Arthur is struck down, right, by Mordred. And he is not yet dead, but he is dying. And he is taken away by three women on a boat to the Isle of Avalon. Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, it, it's This is one of those moments where Robert Jordan is playing with the nature of mythology and legend and and how these stories change over the turning of the wheel. Oh my god. Yeah. He just blew my mind again. That's like three times so, in one episode. So then the next line is the great battle done but the world not done with battle. Obviously the last battle. This is a foretelling scene yep. after the last battle. Now the land divided by the return and the guardians balance the servants. Now this is I think pretty also obvious. pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah. The return is, even though it's not capitalized here, it's the return. Yeah. The the Koren. Um, and the Guardians bounce the servants is the Ashaman, Ashaman balancing the Aes Sedai. Yep. Yeah. And then the future teeters on the edge of a blade. So that is the breakdown of Nicola's foretelling. Now you said you had a, a no, no, that, question? It was, that was my question, was about what the hell the boat was. Because I'm not, it, for oh. me, Arthurian legend, Arthurian myth is like... Something I haven't really even dabbled in since I was about eleven. So okay. that's so you probably why never I had read like the like Lamort to Arthur or like the no, but the I've... Vulgate or Pulse Vulgate or like the Lancelot and Percival books by the no. Chrétien de Troyes or any of those. No, yeah. not okay. Even. <laughs> but we should do something like that. I think this sounds great. <laughs> yeah, that actually that could be a lot of fun like, uh, down the road. Holy shit! And like, and like cool. going, drawing parallels forward to the Wheel of Time instead Holy of back to Arthurian myth. That would probably blow that could my be mind a lot of fun. So many um, times. But yeah, so so that was that piece of lore, and then we're gonna dive into something that I'm gonna tie into the Watt TV show and our discussion, oh. Rob, that we had about the casting and and my concern uh, for the possibility that they might turn Min into oh. a guy. Yeah, got you. Now this is another situation where Robert Jordan was drawing heavily from uh, archetypal myths and legends. And this particular one is what we call the the tripartite goddess. And it's this idea of um, goddesses having different aspects, like three different aspects. And those three aspects are the mother, the maiden, and the crone. And Rand's three lovers represent aspects of this tripartite goddess. Are you shitting me one of them is even called the maiden yeah so obviously the maiden is obviously the, the mother is elaine holy crap the mother is elaine and yep, the crone is men right be men. okay and and it's like you can you can look this up it, it has um aspects throughout many different uh mythologies uh it's I'm a big right deal now. in like some pagan traditions and like uh wiccan things but there are elements of this in like greek and roman tradition and some like Norse traditions and things like that. There, this is a this is a pretty common um, trope, the the tripartite goddess, and I, I think this is a. Crone, holy shit. Yeah, um, 
she's uh, like th this tripartite goddess, right? Um, like they're they're the clear parallels, right? The Elaine is pregnant for a significant portion of the series. She is a mother figure. She's the head of her house. She is the queen. You know, there there's all the symbolism about her, and right. then of course there's the fact that. Elaine is blonde, and she has all of this rose and sun imagery around her. And generally speaking, in these mythologies, the mother is associated with um, the noon time. The sun is on high, like that kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And uh, the meanwhile, Avienda is like the maiden, right? Um, the maiden is associated with like the early part of life, with the sunrise, and Avienda has red hair. And Avienda is Im impulsive and impetuous and is learning to grow into herself as an adult role as a wise Associated one. also with virginity and Rand lost his virginity to Avienda. Yes. Yeah. Holy crap. Um, and then, of course, Min is the crone. She's a seer. She sees beyond the veil, that kind of a thing. Um, and <laughs> and the crone being associated much with, uh, like, evening and twilight and stuff like that. Min Holy is the dark colored one. She has brown hair and brown eyes blowing my mind right now man sorry go ahead <laughs> um but yeah and then and then of course her title that she gets in a memory of light is the doom seer which is like you know if there's ever a title, title given right? yeah. for like the the twilight of life the doom seer you know so this is um uh this is something that i really 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 hope they don't change uh in the TV show, because this is one of my favorite uh, mythological tie-ins to the Wheel of Time, and it was a I, I wrote a significant chunk of my thesis on on this particular um, tripartite goddess archetype. So, it's <laughs> it's something I've been really excited to dig into for like a lore segment since we started doing the Wheel of Time episodes here, and I'm I'm thrilled to be. Uh, you know, finally talking about this. I don't even know how to respond to that. I clearly <laughs> need to do some more research into this. That's what I'm thinking. Holy <laughs> crap. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how much you can get out of these books as long as you have the necessary context and the necessary, yeah. I don't know, education. Holy shit. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be honest, like that was my, my undergrad, like, capstone thesis literature course was on uh sir thomas mallory lamort arthur uh the arthurian myths and uh and i had previously taken a class from uh this same professor on western mythology in general and and so i had been kind of like picking up little things in the wheel of time throughout you know drawing these parallels throughout these two classes with him and then oh, i wrote my thesis where i brought all that's of it back so in. awesome holy shit so and I'm killing, like, killing myself over it. I don't have a copy of my thesis anymore. I, like, what? I don't know. I don't know what happened. I, like, I thought I had it saved on my computer, but some somewhere in, because I've had like three computers since then, it must have gotten lost in one of those transfers over. Like, I, I, I don't have any of my Western Myth or Mallory papers saved anymore, and it kills me because I wish. Damn. I could just like post for the that right on moment Patreon as like say, an hey, exclusive, you know. Send me a copy. Or, I want to read this. You could probably yeah. email someone. Ooh, I actually—that's not a bad idea. I could see there if he's still. Oh well, with a mm, shot. 
I don't, I don't, I didn't email that to him. Or I just rewrite like it. A hard copy. Well, yeah, just rewrite it. Just rewrite a thesis. Because <laughs> no big deal. I can, yeah, not yeah. I definitely have another three months to spend writing a forty-two-page yeah. <laughs> thesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but but yeah, that's uh that's my lore for today. Sweet. So I'm ready to go into the final draft. How about you, gentlemen? Well, I was gonna say, like, do we have just any concluding thoughts on the first? third of Lord of Chaos? I was, I was gonna, I was actually had an entire section, not an entire section, I had a spot where I previously planned to write down a conclusion about this section, but I realized that's the kind of thing that I think I'll wait for until the end of part three, when I want to talk about the book okay. as a whole. Is it messed right. up that I think some of my favorite scenes are with the Forsaken? No, not at all. D- oh, Drew, yeah. uh, Drew, Jared, I'm there with you entirely. Like, 100%. I, I, love all, I love the influx of Forsaken scenes that we get in this section. And we're meeting new ones. Like, we meet Semmerage for the first time. Yeah. I think, I believe Masana for the first oh, time. Oh, how do we forget to, to mention the, the int- our first formal introduction to Shider Haran? Uh, well, first time he's named. Like, that's what I mean by formal introduction, because okay, as yeah. you said, we have seen him before, but this is our first time that we just we have we get a name to him and we get to see him basically make one of the Forsaken his bitch. Yep. And or boss around Demandred. Yeah. But I, I you know? loved that one like just the I very meant, beginning yeah. when Demandred is like falling to his knees and at the pit of doom and he's like, You can leave Murdral and Shadarhan just doesn't move, doesn't say a word, just sits there and watches. He's just unfazed by it. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god! But, it, was, it was cool. But it was great. Overall, like so, as the first third of a book here, um, I I want to kind of compare it to the first third of the Fires of Heaven, where we talked about previous books, especially Dragon Reborn and Shadow Rising. They started off with a bang. There was a mm-hmm. lot of action, and then that pace slowed down a lot in the first third of the Fires of Heaven. It was a lot more like political maneuvering, setting up our characters' current uh, internal landscapes things like that. There was a lot of traveling involved at the beginning of Fires of Heaven, where it's Elena Nynaeve traveling from Tanchico to Saladar. Rand and Matt and Egwene and all them traveling from Roydian to Kyrian. Yeah. yeah, so in this, however, we don't have that kind of geographic movement. And I think that... Um, like, like, we have geographic movement, right? But it's via Gateway a lot. Yeah. And it's via Teleron Riyadh a lot. And because of that, we don't have this feeling of journey that's established here. And I think because of that, the beginning of this book feels a lot faster paced, despite not having a whole ton of action. Yeah, we got the like cool Rand, you know, practice uh, with, with swords, and we get this uh, the, bubble the Bubble of Evil, of evil. and Saladar. Yeah. But even the Bubble of Evil, that's like... 330 pages into the book. Yeah, and it's only like there, four pages long, five pages long. Yeah, there are um, there aren't these huge action scenes at the beginning of it, but because of the new logistics behind traveling, we get to see lots of things happening. There's a lot of movement, so to speak, whether it's action or not. And I love that. And I think that's something that uh, Robert Jordan lost a little bit in some later books and and we'll touch on that there but for lord of chaos specifically the um inclusion of gateways that we got at the end of fires of heaven 
is a major, major factor in this book, and it's a major factor in how he constructs the plot and moves the plot forward. And I love that. Nice. So, on that note, let's on go to the final note. draft. Okay. Who's going to start us off, man? Rob, do it. I'll start us off. So, keeping in mind the change in Rand's personality, <clears throat> the confidence, you know, thinking on his interactions with the nobles of Tyr and Kyrian and Andor, as well as Mazram Taim and Bashir, I was browsing the, the craft brew section in my local grocery store, and I found this East Coast IPA. And I right. brought so many of those onto the podcast, but, you know, they have the most interesting names. This is from Syndicate Brewing in Niagara Falls, Ontario, and this here is called, I'll hold it up for you to see, The Boss. Nice! It's, it's a very light fitting, fitting. ABV, you know, it's only 4.5%, and it, honestly, it's pretty unremarkable in all other aspects besides the name, but, you know, for today's <laughs> podcast, yeah, The Boss from Syndicate, solid 6 out of 10, but, you know, I was also kind of drinking it warm at this point, so that might have affected my rating. I love that. That's a great one. Thank you. Jared, what do you got for me? I have nothing related to the novel at all, but it is... <laughs> it's called Fence Jumper Golden Ale from Uncle Bear's Brewery. Uncle Bear's. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Not too bad. Not, not too shabby. Okay. Well, I don't have the best beer I've ever brought in, uh, but it is... It is... Uh, I should say, I don't have the best titled beer. This... I think is the best beer I've brought onto the podcast so Ooh. far. Um, I I know of all the beers I brought on, I gave this the highest rating on Untapped when I you know when I did that when I first had this. Yeah. Um, this is an Imperial Milk Stout from Weldworks Brewing Company in Greeley, milk Colorado. Stout. And Weld, Weldworks is like uh, you know if if you're into craft beer at all, they are on top of the world. Uh, like Weldworks just won two two medals at GABF at the Great American Beer Festival this year. They, I mean, they're one of the most sought after breweries, certainly in Colorado and and in the U.S. in general. They're they're absolutely crushing it right now, um, and and I'm very fortunate to live like 20 minutes away from them. Uh, but yeah, so this is an Imperial Milk Stout. So it's a stout brewed with milk sugar, hazelnut, toasted coconut, and milk chocolate. Oh my god, that sounds so good. It is 11.5% ABV. Oh my god. It is phenomenal. It is just super hazelnutty, super rich chocolate dessert in a can. And this is my ode to The Gap of Infinity. And it is called Starriest Night. Oh my god. I don't know, that's pretty fitting. That is pretty damn good. If you find a beer at that quality and it still has this much to do contextual wise with the subject matter, that is incredible. <laughs> Holy shit. Nicely yeah, done, my uh, man. It, of all the beers I brought on the podcast, um I think the the only one that really rivals this was the the coconut snowed in. I uh, I love that one, too. Oh, yeah, um, with The Fires of Heaven Part 2. Yeah, but I, I think I gave Coconut Snowed in a 4.5 out of 5 on Untapped, and I gave this a 4.75. So, uh, and I don't know, like, I don't give out many fives. I've, I've, I think I've checked in, like, four or five hundred beers on Untapped, and I've Holy rated shit. five of them a perfect five. 
So <laughs> I, I have, a, not pretty, have a drinking problem. Pretty harsh. Uh, <laughs> well, part of that is like you go to a beer festival and you're having like one ounce pours of beers, you know, so you can go to a festival and check in like 60 beers yeah. and some of them you're having like a couple of sips of, you know, you're not, you're not actually drinking 60 beers. You're drinking yeah. like, yeah, you know, eight or nine, <laughs> but, Good point. um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, brings us to the end for uh, Lord of chaos yeah. here. Where are we reading for uh, the end of part two? Yeah, so we are going to be reading a pretty big chunk of the book for part two. We're going to read until the end of chapter 42, The Black Tower. Oh, okay. So it's going to be, uh, we're, we're going to try to do a bigger bigger chunk for part two, and yeah, we'll probably have a longer episode for that, but that'll give us more room for part three to discuss the great ending to this novel. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Can't wait. Boys boys yeah 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 so this has been episode what 41 41 today Oof. uh of thinking out loud patreon exclusives yeah 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 not counting our patreon exclusives although if you want to check those out we have uh just today actually posted our discussion of wheel of time casting announcements rumors and speculation uh we have a couple of short episodes on there for like short stories um including uh, Brandon Sanderson's Mitosis. Uh, but, yeah, next up we'll be doing uh, Lord of Chaos Part 2. Um, and keep an eye out. We'll, we'll be finishing up Lord of Chaos, but in, in the middle there, we're going to be having a very special episode on Starsight, the new Brandon Sanderson novel coming out in so uh, just a couple of weeks here. Don't. And, um, uh, yeah, but then we'll be diving back into the Wheel of Time because... We got a long haul ahead of us, and we are having a blast. So, as always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. I can hear the outro music already. (laughs) And our very special guest, Jared Livingston. Awesome to be here, as always. Thanks, Jared. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Peace out, everybody.